It's the South's biggest deal for AJC podcast listeners. For a limited time, subscribe and you'll get digital access to the AJC for $1.99 per week. For life, as long as you keep your subscription. That's our sports and politics coverage, breaking news and in-depth investigations, food and dining, and more from AJC.com every day for life. You'll also unlock access to our app, exclusive films, events, and newsletters. Subscribe now by going to AJC.com slash start. That's AJC.com slash start for new subscribers only. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. A celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to AJC.com news breakdown. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our reporters and ask questions about our story. Previously... On breakdown. The court does find that the uh, first step has been satisfied by the state, given the numbers involved, the pool itself. A disproportionate number on the black members of the panel. The court finds in this particular case, the state again has satisfied its burden with regard to a McCollum or reverse Batson. Did this guy break into a house today? Did he commit a burglary today? What did he do today that you have immediate knowledge of? That's just it. I don't know, says Greg McMichael. What we're asking you to do is hard, and it may be unpopular, but we're asking you to recognize your responsibility as jurors and being open to the facts and putting aside emotion and listening to the law and applying that and doing your duty because we think the only right verdict is not guilty on each and every count in this indictment. Welcome back to Breakdown. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. As always, I'm joined by my AJC colleague, Asia Simone Burns. Last week, we had plenty of testimony in the murder trial against Travis McMichael, his father Greg McMichael, and Roddy Bryan. We had some surprises. We had some skirmishes. And we had both sides doing all they could to cling onto testimony that supported their positions. One of the state's first witnesses was the first officer to arrive at the scene. Ricky Minshew is no longer a cop, but on February 23, 2020, he was the one dispatch radioed about a suspicious person. That call was made by Matthew Albenze, the man who saw Ahmad Arbery go into Larry English's home under construction. Minshew got the call at 1.08 p.m., and he got to the scene about five minutes later. Now, as you're driving down Satilla Drive... This is Prosecutor Larissa Olivier. Does anything catch your attention? Do you hear anything? When I first came in the neighborhood, um, I didn't hear anything. As I go a little further down Satilla Drive, um, I hear two loud pop sounds. Um, They were within a couple seconds apart. Minshew kept driving until he came to the intersection of Holmes Road and Satilla Drive. He saw two white men trying to flag him down, Greg and Travis, and he saw Ahmad in the middle of the roadway. He appeared to be, uh, he was wearing a white t-shirt. He had khakis and white tennis shoes. He appeared to be uh, unresponsive to his surroundings, appeared to be deceased. He was covered in blood, uh, the, the back of his shirt. Uh, the majority of the back of his shirt was, was covered in blood. And up underneath him, he had bled out to the point that the blood was uh, exceeding the perimeter of his body. Uh, so he was laying face down on his stomach in the puddle of blood. Okay. Did you hear any kind of sounds at all coming from the deceased male? Yes, ma'am. I heard uh, 
is a, like, a, like an agonal breathing. I've always heard it being called a death rattle. Minshew has been criticized for not tending to the dying Ahmad. In fact, he never touched him. Olivier asked him why. Well, when I got there, uh, I did not know any of the people or any of the facts or circumstances to what had happened. The only thing I knew that I observed was a body laying in the middle of the roadway that had just bled out, and it was by apparent gunfire. Being that I was the only officer on scene, without having any other police units to watch my back, uh, there was no way that I could switch my attention to anything medical and still be able to watch my surroundings and watch after my own safety. Ahmad's mom was not convinced. I understood he had to go and secure the crime scene, but at the same time, he had a guy laying in the middle of the road in a pool of blood. I couldn't really understand why he didn't deliver the aid at that time. Very disturbing. That's Wanda Cooper after hearing Minshew's testimony. We know the audio is not the best, so just to make sure you heard it, she said, he had a guy laying in the middle of the road in a puddle of blood. I couldn't really understand why he didn't render aid at the time. It was very disturbing. Now, here's Ahmad's dad, Marcus Arbery Sr. I'm going to ask you a serious question. Have you seen your kid get blown apart with a toy again? Again, just to be clear, he said, I'm going to ask you a serious question. If you'd seen your kid get blown apart with a 12-gauge shotgun like that, what would you do? Olivier used Minshew to turn the state's focus on Roddy. Minshew, after all, interviewed Roddy at the scene. He eventually sat in Roddy's truck and watched the video from Roddy's cell phone. Roddy tells Minshew he was working on his front porch when he saw a black man, Ahmad, run by. He was followed by two white men and a white pickup truck. He said, uh, he hollered at the truck, y'all got him? At that, Roddy gets his keys, jumps into his own truck, and joins in the chase. Did he ever ask the black guy if he was okay? No, ma'am, he did not say he did. Did he ever ask the black guy if he needed help in any way? No, ma'am, he didn't say he did that. Okay. Remember, you can be convicted of felony murder when you commit a felony and someone dies because of it. Here, through Menchu, Olivier tries to make a case for the felony of false imprisonment. Now, according to Brian, did he say specifically that he blocked Ahmad during this chase? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Did he say specifically that he cornered Ahmad during this chase? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Roddy told Minshew that at one point, Ahmad had to stop and catch his breath, and he looked like he was tired of running. Roddy also told Minshew he heard this from Greg and Travis's truck. He said he heard, uh, stop, what'd you do? Or something like that. What'd you steal? What'd you do? Olivier then asks this. Did Brian ever say he saw Ahmad commit any crime at the point where Brian decided to leave his house? Uh, No, ma'am, he did not report any crime to me. Okay. Did Brian ever say he was trying to make a citizen's arrest of Ahmad? No, ma'am. Did Brian ever say he was trying to arrest Ahmad for criminal trespass? No, ma'am. Loitering? No, ma'am. Burglary? Didn't mention it. No. Attempted burglary? No, ma'am. Aggravated assault? No. Anything? No, ma'am. Olivier plays the final moments of Roddy's cell phone video to the jury. It is so awful and jarring to see. And here. Jason Sheffield, Travis's lawyer, cross-examines Minshew. He plays some more of the body cam video. And what is it that you just heard Mr. McMichael say? Sound like uh, the, the Greg McMichael said uh, he had no choice. Okay. Sheffield also plays this part of the video because you can hear <gasps> Travis gasp. You know where he got shot at, man? He shot on the front side. Okay. Okay. Negative. going to be a black male, middle of the runway. About Sheffield continues. Do you see Mr. McMichael trying to console his son? I see him have his uh, <clears throat> hand on his shoulder. And he says he had no choice. Did you hear that? I heard him say that. Okay. Kevin Goff, Roddy Bryan's lawyer, is next. Roddy Bryan never told you 
that he tried to hit Mr. Arbery with his truck? No. Okay. Obviously, had Roddy Bryan told you that he assaulted Mr. Arbery with his pickup truck, you would not have sent him home with his truck. Correct. Goff asks Minchu if Roddy seemed gleeful. He says no. Boastful? No. Attention-seeking? No. He also gets Minchu to relate what Roddy told him, why he took the cell phone video in the first place. Mr. William Brown said, well, I thought he was going to get away. And you said So that okay. was the reason. Okay. All right. And as we told you before in episode seven, Roddy told Minchu, should I have been chasing him? I don't know. On Tuesday, the state's focus was on Greg, the one who started it all. Two members of the Glen County Police Force were called as witnesses. First up is the cop who interviewed Greg at the scene. The second is the detective who interviewed him later at police headquarters. I'm going to ask you a question. You ever testified at a trial before? That's lead prosecutor Linda Donikoski. She's posing the question to a clearly nervous and anxious Jeff Brandeberry. He's the patrol officer who interviewed Greg shortly after the fatal shooting. Not with a jury, no ma'am. Certainly not on TV. All right. Brandeberry's job was to get Greg's version of what happened. But it was a chaotic scene. Brandeberry is interrupted repeatedly by fellow officers and by neighborhood residents who come up and start talking to Greg. Brandeberry's body cam video memorialized his entire conversation with Greg. But instead of us watching the video, Brandeberry has dozens of pages of a transcript in his hands. It's what he said to Greg and what Greg said to him. Of course, it'd be better to hear what was on the body cam. And breakdown listeners know we played a lot of that in episode 7. As for now, well, there's this 1968 U.S. Supreme Court case, Bruton versus United States. This comes into play because we have three defendants on trial, and all three defendants gave multiple interviews to the police. The Bruton decision says each defendant has a right to cross-examine any witness who testifies against him. That's to clarify what the witness said or question the credibility of that witness. Here, anything a co-defendant said about another co-defendant, what Greg said about Roddy, what Roddy said about Travis, etc., is like testimony. And if they don't testify, if they don't take the stand, they can't be cross-examined about what they said in an interview about a fellow co-defendant. And there's the confrontation clause, right? In a criminal trial, the accused has the right to confront the witnesses against him or her. It's a matter of allowing a defendant to develop the full story, not just a part of it. So it's just not fair to introduce a co-defendant's statement with no cross-examination. That's a mouthful. It sure is. But here, it's critically important. And that's why Brandberry and subsequent witnesses will be reading transcripts of interviews. What anyone said about their co-defendants has to be stricken. It can't be read. Exactly. Denikoski asks Brandberry to tell the jury how Greg explained how he identified a mod as he ran past his house. I've seen these videos, so I know what the guy looks like. Black male. He wears short pants generally, a white t-shirt. He's got these little short dreads. I don't know what the hell you call them. But anyway, so I'm standing in front I'm standing in my front yard just a little while ago. This guy comes hauling ass down the street. Like I said, I mean like like something's after him. Brandeberry describes Greg's demeanor at the scene. He was pretty amped up. He was um, he, he appeared a little upset. He was talking a lot with gestures and using his hands. At one point, a neighbor walks up to the scene, and he asks Greg if the guy who's been shot is, quote, the drunk guy who lives nearby. And Greg asks, the one who shuffles? The neighbor says yes. Yeah, no, that's, uh, this is not, this ain't no shuffler. This guy's an asshole. I mean, he was hooked up when he came around that street. All right, so, hold on. Greg Michael says, this ain't no shuffler. Yes, ma'am. This guy's an asshole. Who's he talking about? I'm assuming a mod over. Okay. And he says, I mean, he was hooked up when he came around the street. That's what he's telling this other man. Yes, ma'am. All right. How far away were you from the dead body of Maud Arbery when he called him an asshole? Uh, 20, 30 feet, maybe. Maybe a little bit further than that. 
We have said this before, but we can't say it enough. This case hinges on Georgia's old citizen's arrest law. It says, if a citizen sees someone fleeing a scene and the citizen has reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion that that person committed a felony, the citizen can arrest and detain that person until police arrive. So both sides ask Brandeberry about that. And there's actually quite a bit that each side can cling on to. But there is one problem Greg has at the scene. He overstates what's been happening in his neighborhood, like here. This guy who we've seen on video numerous times breaking into these other houses, he comes hauling to ask down the street, right? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Did Greg and Michael tell you which houses? No, ma'am. Did he tell you which houses to go to? No, ma'am. Of course, we've only heard about Ahmad entering the English house under construction. It's often referred to as the house on 220 Satilla Drive. And listen to what Greg told the coroner. This is transcribed from Brandeberry's body cam. Well, he makes frequent trips to the neighborhood, gets caught on video camera like every third or fourth night, breaking into places. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. Of course, we know Ahmad was captured on English's security video five times over almost five months. Ultimately, Greg changes his story, or he seems to correct himself. On numerous occasions, the guy has broken into a house over here, and they've got him on video. Okay, so now we've gone from numerous houses, he's on lots of videos, to numerous occasions, the guy has broken into a house over here. He just says a house, right? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Greg tells Brandenbury he yelled at Ahmad, stop, I want to talk to you, shortly before the shooting. And Greg also said this. I saw him, yeah, in fact, if... If, to be perfectly honest with you, if I could have got a shot at the guy, I'd have shot him myself. Next up is Detective Parker Marcy. He interviewed Greg at the police station. His interview was transcribed, of course. On the stand, Marcy has dozens of pages of that transcript in his hands. Here's Marcy telling Dunikoski what Greg told him he was thinking when he saw Maude run past his house. Uh, I'll be quoting him. Uh, He says, well, I'm thinking he's... He's either done something to somebody's something to somebody's chasing him or, you know, he's I thought, well, maybe somebody drove up and found him in their house or drove up to that particular house. He likes to go into over and over again. So he doesn't tell you he specifically saw him commit a crime that day. Correct. And there's this exchange. I asked him if the individual is picking up uh, picking up anything or going through anything. And specifically, what did he say? Go ahead and quote it for us. Line 11 through 15. Uh, He says, and I'm quoting, you know, not that I recall, I don't think the guy has actually stolen anything out of there, or if he did, it was was early in this process. But it keeps going back there over and over and over again to this damn house. Here's where Dunikoski tries to establish a false imprisonment charge. Greg says this after telling Ahmad to stop, stop, stop. He says that Mr. Arbery puts it in high gear. Okay. And what did Mr. Greg McMichael say at that point once Mr. Arbery put it in high gear? Uh, He stated to cut him off three times. All right. He just said, I said, cut him off, cut him off, cut him off. Yes, ma'am. At one point, Greg said he got out of the pickup and began following Ahmad on foot. Then he gave that up. He said, I hauled my old crippled ass up into the back of the truck. Greg said he wanted to stop Ahmad to hold him. So he's holding him. Did he tell you what he was going to hold him for? Uh, he was going to contact the county police. Okay, and do what? Uh, he was going to hold him for county police so that he could either be arrested or identified. Greg also told Brandenberry he had, quote, no doubt in my mind who Ahmad was having seen the security videos from the English house. And as to why he armed up, Maybe Ahmad had a gun. Maybe. The thing that was doubtful, not doubtful, but was was certainly a driving factor in my mind, was that my son had a missing pistol, and I'm pretty certain this guy, well, I don't know for a fact, and I have no, no reason to think that he did it, other than the fact that this guy has been going over, bang, this guy has been doing this crap over and over and over. What Greg also says is... A malifor. He's merging two figures of speech that produce a nonsensical remark. And as to what he says, it sounds awful. I mean, really bad. Quoting, of course, you know, it's pretty, 
don't take a rocket surgeon to figure out, you know, that the guy was cornered. He was cornered like a, like a, like a rat. You know, he, you know, that's, that was his reaction. That was whose reaction? Mr. Arbor's. That he was cornered like a rat. Yes, ma'am. That would be either a rocket scientist or a brain surgeon, of course. Later, Dunikoski plays a video from a home security camera across the street from the English house on 220 Satella Drive. We see Ahmad enter and leave. Then, we see an ambulance and fire truck speed by to respond to Ahmad's shooting. And then, we see a Georgia power utility truck stop in front of English's house. Dunikoski begins asking a series of questions that flummoxes the defense team. What's the Georgia power guy doing now? Marcy says the guy is using the porta potty in front of the English home. Is Mr. Arbery lying dead at the time this guy steps onto the property at 220? Sheffield objects. So does Goff. Ridiculous. It's irrelevant. It's the purpose of asking if he's dead at the time somebody's urinating at a porta potty. That's ridiculous. All right. This is beyond pale. So after Sheffield asks why the jury needs to know that Ahmad is dead when the utility guy is using the porta potty, he calls it a ridiculous question, Judge Timothy Walmsley asks Dunikoski to explain the relevance. The relevance is, is that people stopped and got onto this property at 220, all kinds of people. And this man, who's a Georgia Power employee, stopped to use this porta potty. And all kinds of people come onto this property and Mr. Arbery's dead because he's going on this property. That's the relevance of this evidence. Judge Walmsley sustains the objection, but Dunikoski's made her point. And the jury sure heard it. So did Ahmad's mom, Wanda Cooper. She was in the courtroom, and here's what she later said outside. It's very saddening knowing that my son had just had just entered that same property minutes before, and then another guy came by in this Georgia Power utility truck and used that, went into that same property. And that gentleman is still now alive today, and my son is deceased. Frank Hogue, one of Greg's lawyers, cross-examines Marcy, and he seems to score some points. Here he is asking Marcy about why Greg got his 357 Magnum. So now we've got a missing weapon, and the possibility in my mind that the guy that's been breaking in down the road there may have, may have that weapon. That's what he's telling you he's thinking, right? Yes, sir. And you say to him, possibility, and that's that's your subjective opinion? And that's right, that's what you asked him. Yes, sir. And he says, that's my, just a a hunch, I was a cop for 30 years, you know, and you say, right. Yes, sir. And then he says, and, and then you're interrupting say was a hunch but a lead right yes sir and he says right exactly yes sir marcy then gets a bit simpatico with greg and you said we've got that intuition now by we you're talking to him saying we police officers not you and me personally perhaps but Correct, we, just law enforcement we law and in general. Okay. Yes, sir. We've got that intuition, and he says to you exactly, correct? Yes, sir. And you say, I'm on the same page as you, right? Yes, sir. Hug shares this exchange. Plus, we've had numerous entering autos and other burglaries and thefts out of yards and that sort of thing throughout the neighborhood, right? Yes, sir. So you know he'd be a prime suspect. And he's saying a suspect in his mind. He's telling you that that's what he's thinking. Yes, sir. Hogue also quotes this from Greg's interview. And Mr. McMichael says to you, you know, if he had turned around and said, hey, man, I'm, you know, Joe. I live around the corner. And, you know, I'm just out running. You know, it would have been a whole different ballgame. He's telling you that? Yes, sir. I don't know. I don't see that being a whole different ball game if Ahmad said something like that. Do you? Um, not at all. But that's what Greg said. Jason Sheffield then cross-examines Marcy and also scores some points with regard to reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. Like this exchange here. Greg McMichael told you that Mr. Arby was the prime suspect of the burglaries 
that he believed were committed in 220 in September. Taking full context of the conversation, yes, sir. Yeah, he used those words. Yeah. Prime says. He did. Okay. Don't forget, burglary is a felony. And it's not whether Ahmad actually committed a burglary. It's what Greg reasonably believed. Sheffield continues to ask Marcy about possible burglaries. Denikoski repeatedly objects. And Wamsley sustains the objections. He tells Sheffield to move on. Wamsley has been incredibly patient and level-headed throughout just about this entire trial. But this exchange pushes him over the edge. You did not follow up to try to determine if a burglary had been committed at 220? Objection. Once again, formal question. On what day? He's already testified to what he did, and you've asked him. It was either you or... Why I'm so confused here. It's not necessarily what Sheffield says. It was how he says it and his body language. He kind of rolled his eyes and then turned away in frustration. It was indeed a display, and it provokes Wamsley to say this. Ladies and gentlemen, if you could please take a step outside. After the jury departs, Wamsley fixes his gaze on Sheffield. Please do. Mr. Sheffield, you can agree or disagree with this court. That is your prerogative. But to act in the way that you just did in front of this panel, disrespect, I don't care whether you like my rulings or not, or you like me or not, but in this court, the Superior Court, it is axiomatic that counsel show at least respect for what the court is doing. And what you just did shows a lack of respect for what the court is trying to do here, which is create an environment which is fair to all parties. I would suggest that you take a moment to think about that. I'm going to step off the bench because I found that, um, I'll just call it rude. I would suggest that you temper uh, some of that very quickly um, because it will not be tolerated in this court and um, I will leave it at that. I do not need an explanation. I do not need an apology, none of that. But I would suggest that we take a moment and think about the way that you're reacting to the court's uh, instructions and rulings. We're in recess. Thank you. When Wamsley returns to the bench, there's peace on earth again. Denikoski gets another shot at Marcy and seems to make the most of it. She gets the detective to repeat what Greg said. Maybe Ahmad was hauling ass because maybe he had done something or maybe someone had driven up and found him in their house. So we have like speculation on four different things in that sentence, right? Yes, ma'am. Donikowski then gets Marcy to repeat several of Greg's statements. She then makes note of each word of indecision Greg used. We've got probability, maybe, possibility, hunch, logic, intuition, speculation, and if. These are all the things he's telling you. Yes, ma'am. All right. He didn't provide you with any concrete, specific evidence or facts at all about the neighborhood and what was going on with it, except for the open, unsecured construction site at 220 Satilla Drive, right? Correct. When Marcy stepped out of the interrogation room, Sergeant Roderick Nohilly took his place. So he's called to the stand. Then Akoski picks up the questioning, again relying on the transcript of the interview. She reads the question Nohilly posed to Greg. Did this guy break into a house today? Well, that's just it. I don't know. That's what I told. I told, what's her name out there? I said, listen, you might want to go knock on doors down there because this guy had just done something that he was fleeing from. Denikoski notes Nohilly asked Greg to speculate what was going on in Ahmad's mind during the chase. Here was Greg's answer. He was trapped like a rat. I think he was wanting to flee, and he realized that something, you know, he was not going to get away. Lawyer Frank Hogue cross-examines Nohilly and reads this part of the transcript. White t-shirt, short pants, I mean, plus he was hauling ass. And, and you know this, he was running like people don't run normally. He wasn't out for no Sunday jog. He was getting the hell out of there. I read all that accurately. Yes. <clears throat> and there was no... No hesitation on his part when he came to Travis. I mean, it was, I think he was, 
his intention was to grab that gun and probably shoot Travis. That's in my mind, that's what I saw, you know. And with that in mind, if he, if he'd had gotten that shotgun and there was any separation between Travis and him, I was going to cap his ass. On Wednesday, Matthew Albenze follows Nohilly to the witness stand. He is not a happy camper. As you'll hear, this is not something Albenze wants to be doing. On the afternoon of February 23rd, 2020, Albenze was in his front yard cutting up wood using a log splitter. He looks up and sees a black man in shorts and a t-shirt in front of Larry English's home. It's Ahmad, of course. He then walks into English's house. Albenze goes inside his house. He gets his cell phone and a handgun, which he puts in his pocket. Albenze then walks down the street, just across from the English home. He stands under an oak tree. Keeping an eye on the English house, he calls the non-emergency center at the Glen County Police Department. Albenze says he sees a man entering a house under construction, and he says that man has been caught on camera, and it's an ongoing thing. There have been break-ins. Then, in the middle of the call, Albenze tells the operator this. And we know where Ahmad goes. He runs past the McMichaels' house, and the chase is on. Albenze says he walked down the street a bit and makes an arm gesture pointing down the road where Ahmad was running. I saw in the video, you know, there he goes. And who are you doing that to? I was just thinking to myself, run on down the street. Were you intending to communicate to anyone in particular at that time? No. After that, he returned home. After you went home, what happened next? Uh, after a few minutes, I heard gunshots. How many gunshots did you hear? Three. So Albenze hops on his bike and rides to the scene. I saw a police car. I saw Mr. Arby laying on the street. I saw Miss Greg and Travis there. What did you do? I stopped and went home. As you know, it's kind of a shocking scene. When reminded he'd been contacted that night by Glen County Police, Albenze says he can't remember it. He'd had way too many cocktails. Lawyer Bob Rubin, who represents Travis, starts his cross-examination, and he picks up on the obvious. You don't want to be here. Rather be elsewhere, yes. Almost anywhere else, probably. This has been very difficult for you, correct? Yeah. Um, it's caused you personally some problems um, as, a re- as a result of your role in calling 911. Yes, it is. You've had some concerns at work. Yes. You've had um, concerns about your neighborhood, Satilla Shores. Yes. And even personal attacks on you, phone calls, things like that. Recently, yes. Ruben then asks Albenze if he thinks Ahmad saw him looking at him from across the street. He reminds Albenze that he told the GBI he thought that was so. At least it was possible in your mind, and you felt some guilt over that. I did. Because you felt like you put into motion these events that turned tragic. I thought maybe if he hadn't seen me, he wouldn't have run away. I don't know. Right. And that, of course, it still weighs heavy on your heart. Yes. Okay. The judge tells Albenze he can step down. He appears extremely relieved. His testimony is over. But Kelly Parr is one witness who didn't seem unhappy, nervous, or reluctant to be on the stand. If you remember, one of the pellets from Travis's shotgun blast went through a door in a house nearby and lodged in the wall. Parr's parents were living in that house. They lived there about 50 years before moving to Florida last year, and Parr grew up in that home on Satilla Drive until she went off to college. She says that during the months leading up to Ahmad's fatal shooting, her parents told her they were worried about the crime in Satilla Shores, and she also says this. She says when she was driving to see her parents one Sunday afternoon, she saw a black man she now believes to be Ahmad standing in front of the doorway to the English home, 
It was either in late December 2019 or early January 2020. He was a black man. He was very tall. From what I remember, he had like, uh, I guess they were like basketball shorts on and I, I believe high top sneakers and a t-shirt. Parr says they made eye contact. I remember having a dialogue in my head. Should I tell you about that? Like just what I thought. I, I thought I was driving by and I thought, what is he doing in there? And then I thought, no, Kelly, don't be racist. He's probably working on the house. And then I thought, well, no, he doesn't have a tool belt on. So well, I wonder what he's doing there. You know, just the whole thing. So we were just looking at each other and I wasn't really sure. And I just, you know, kept driving. She says when he saw her, he didn't duck inside the house and he didn't run away. He just stood there. I think I just really drove away thinking, ah, no big deal, you know. This is Breakdown. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Okay, Asia is exiting stage right. It's her bachelorette birthday bash this weekend. She's headed back to Atlanta. Can't miss that, right? Definitely not. So my able colleague, Shadi Abu Said, will step in. Another witness called by the state on Wednesday is Stephen Lowry. He's no longer at the Glynn County Police Department, but he was the lead detective in investigating Ahmad's killing. And he didn't arrest anyone. Remember, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation ultimately took over the case from Glynn County PD, and its agents arrested Greg and Travis about two months after the shooting, and Roddy two weeks after that. On the stand, Lowry said just a few weeks after the shooting, his investigation had no traction, was pretty much inactive. Lowry interviewed Roddy at police headquarters, so prosecutor Larissa Olivier gets him to read sections of that transcript. Once again, the focus is on the underlying false imprisonment charge. During the interview, Brian says... He tried to cut off Ahmad repeatedly as he ran through the Satilla Shores neighborhood. We'll play some snippets of that testimony. So he's saying he kind of angled and then overshot the road and forced uh, Ahmad to go into a ditch. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Here's another one. And then Mr. Bryan says, and I angled my truck at him again. I think he kind of turned around. I missed him or whatever, but that's when he, I told the other officer this, we were still right about in this area right here. And a third time. I think I backed up and kind of went at him a little bit, and I can see that he was coming towards the truck. I mean, I had my window down. He was coming. He was trying to get in the truck at that point. So I slammed it in a drive and jumped out away from him. Roddy also says he wishes he'd hit a mod, that it may have saved his life. Mr. Bryan says, I feel pretty sure that's what he was doing. I mean, I can't say for sure that he, he wasn't on the door. I didn't give him a chance to get to the door, but after I angled him off the side of the road, you know, and I kind of went on past him because I didn't hit him, wish I would have, might have took him out and not get him shot. Roddy tells Lowry he tried to cut Ahmad off a fourth time, and this time Ahmad turns around and starts running back the other way. He runs to the intersection of Satilla Drive and Holmes Road. Now... Was there something else that happened on Holmes Road after what we just discussed? Um, yes, that was the shooting and the, the murder itself took place right after. Hang on. Did the lead investigator on the case use the word murder on the witness stand? And none of the defense attorneys objected? I thought that's what this trial is all about. Anyway, it sure sounds like Roddy is saying that on his last cutoff, Ahmad turned and ran the other way, rounding a corner and heading toward Greg and Travis. Travis is out of the truck holding his shotgun. Moments later, there's a tussle, and Ahmad is dead. That all sounded really bad for Roddy. But remember, Lowry made no arrests, and Roddy's lawyer, Kevin Goff, uses that to his advantage. If you understood Roddy Bryan to have meant that he deliberately attacked Mr. Arbery with his truck, if you understood him to say that he made an aggravated assault with a motor vehicle, 
upon Mr. Arbery. Could you have ignored that? Uh, no, that wasn't the way I interpreted it at the time, though. Yes. Well, obviously, that would be a very serious, serious violent felony. But that wasn't your understanding. No, sir. Goff gets Lowry to agree that Roddy never denied angling his vehicle ahead of Ahmad, never denied blocking the path of Ahmad, never denied cutting him off. Goff then asks this. Is there any reason why you would give special treatment to Roddy Bryant? No. Okay. And your decisions in this case, personally, about how you went about your investigation, did they have anything whatsoever to do with whether Mr. Amar Arbery was black or white? No, sir. Wanda Cooper had been in the courtroom throughout Lowry's testimony. She says that while Lowry called her on the day her son was killed, she never actually met him, never met the lead detective on her son's homicide case. The lead detective. How does that happen? Investigator Lowry was the individual who called me on that Sunday afternoon about 6.30 p.m. and told me that Amar had committed a burglary. He told me that Amar had did a burglary, he was confronted by the homeowner, and Amar was killed. I listened to Investigator Lowry today for about, for about three hours. He did not tell the courts that Ahmad had committed a burglary. In fact, he said nothing about a burglary that Ahmad had committed. But instead, he called me and told me that my son was deceased because he had committed a burglary. That, that was very disturbing. There was a good crowd outside the courtroom on Wednesday when the Reverend Al Sharpton walked up with an entourage. The demonstrators outside were fired up when he appeared at a lectern on the courthouse grounds. Dear God, we called you from so many places, trying to wipe away tears of determination and of sorrow. Sharpton held a lunchtime prayer vigil and criticized the almost all-white jury, calling it, quote, an insult to the intelligence of the American people. What has happened in this case is a lynching in the 21st century. Then he went upstairs and listened to some of the afternoon testimony. His appearance that day led Roddy's lawyer, Kevin Goff, to make a startling request. Throughout the course of the trial, Goff has made a number of cringe-worthy statements, like asking prospective jurors, who would you want to deliver your eulogy if a meteorite fell on you on your way to court? He really asked that. But this? This? This topped them all. Well, I was cross-examining uh, Investigator Lowry yesterday is that the right Reverend Al Sharpton managed to find his way into the back of the courtroom. Uh, I'm guessing he was somehow there at the invitation of the victim's family in this case. And I have nothing personally against Mr. Sharpton. My concern is that it's one thing for the family to be present. It's another thing to ask for the lawyers to be present. But if we're going to start a precedent starting yesterday, we're going to bring high-profile members of the African-American community into the courtroom to sit with the family during the trial in the presence of the jury. I believe that's intimidating, and it's an attempt to pressure. Could be, consciously or unconsciously, an attempt to, to pressure or influence the jury. Goff says Sharpton has no church in Glynn County. Never has. The idea that we're going to be serially bringing these people in to sit with the victim's family one after another, obviously there's only so many pastors they can have. And if their pastor's Al Sharpton right now, that's fine. But then that's it. We don't want any more black pastors coming in here. I was watching when Goff said that. Attorney Laura Hoag's eyes bugged out when she heard those words. I'm sure mine did too. Goff looked to Judge Walmsley. He asked him to take, quote, appropriate steps to address the matter. He also says this. If a bunch of folks came in here dressed like Colonel Sanders with white masks sitting in the back, I mean, that would be good. Judge Walmsley raises his hand and cuts him off. I had no problem with that. I know, right? Walmsley explains he'd heard Sharpton was going to appear with the Arbery family and was asked if he had any objection to Sharpton sitting in court. And my comment to that was simply, as long as things are not disruptive and it's not a distraction to the jury or anything else going on in the courtroom, so be it. But if it violates the court's rules with regard to the conduct of the trial or violates 
My orders with respect to how people are to conduct themselves in this courtroom, I will take it up with whomever I need to take it up with. Well, I will tell you that I noticed him once and that was it. Wamsley also says, I'm not going to issue a blanket order barring any member of the public from the courtroom. Let's not overstate what's going on here, Mr. Goff, because this will become a distraction that we're going to waste a bunch of time on. If you weren't even aware of it until later, not sure what we're doing. Sharpton issues a statement later in the day. He calls Goff arrogant and insensitive. Sharpton says he was there to give spiritual strength to a grieving family. He says this is beyond defending your client. It's insulting to the victim's family. It's pouring salt into their wounds. Attorney Jason Sheffield, who represents Travis, distanced himself from Goff's remarks. During a break the next day, he called them asinine and ridiculous. Sheffield adds, We feel anyone is welcome to come show their support. Come one, come all. Thursday's testimony belongs to Larry English, although English isn't in the courthouse. He, of course, owns the vacation home under construction on Satilla Drive. His primary residence is in the town of Douglas, about 100 miles away. He was once a general contractor. He's now a commercial beekeeper. About six years ago, he was diagnosed with sarcoidosis, a disease that attacks your vital organs. For that reason, he looked for a place on the water because he loves to fish. He found the place in Satilla Shores and began building a home there. The disease is also why he gave his testimony on September 24th, weeks before the trial. His doctor said his poor health and vulnerable system prevented him from testifying, so he did so in what's called a deposition. He testifies under oath the lawyers on both sides asking questions, and with Walmsley presiding. It was all videotaped. So the jury watches the recorded testimony and listens to the deposition. It lasts almost four hours. English said after he built his dock, he set up infrared security cameras pointing out behind the house. He installed even more cameras after about $2,500 in electronics were stolen from his boat. They were synced to his cell phone, which alerted him when they were activated. Like on October 25, 2019, the first time he saw a man later identified as Ahmad. He called police. Yes, ma'am, this is Larry English. I'm calling from Douglas, Georgia. And I have, I have a house that we're under construction on, and I have a dock down at 220 Satilla Drive at Satilla Shores in Brunswick. Okay. I got a camera system there, and I've got a trespasser there. So he's a, a colored guy, got real curly looking hair, he's tattooed down both arms. And, uh, and he's over there kind of pondering around, I don't know what's going on. I was just wondering if you could send a, a deputy or somebody out to check him out for me, please. And you don't know who it is? No, no. I've never seen it before. It, it don't look good, Plundering is a loaded word. It literally means illegally taking something by force. So, Prosecutor Paul Camarillo asks English about that. And in that call, you were, you used the word um, plundering around. What, what do you mean by that? I'm just looking around and just, you know, checking things out. Camarillo plays another call English made to police on November 18th, 2020. Ahmad is there again. English testifies that Diego Perez, who lives two doors down, volunteered to check out the vacation home. Perez said, I have night vision goggles and can pin up an intruder until police arrive. English gave Perez permission to do so. Upon hearing this, Camarillo asks English if this permission extended to Greg and Travis. At any point in time, did you authorize the McMichaels to ever confront anybody on your site? No. Or to act on behalf of the police on your site? No. On construction site? Taking English on cross, Travis's lawyer, Bob Rubin, has a moment. This has to do with the electronics stolen from English's boat. He told his neighbors he believed the items were taken out of the boat while it was being stored in Satilla Shores. But English didn't tell his neighbors this. 
He later realized the stuff could have been stolen from his boat after he'd taken it back to Douglas, where he lives full-time. Never posted any kind of alert to your neighbors, hey, never mind, wasn't stolen from this neighborhood, it was stolen from somewhere else. No. Therefore, Mr. English, to your knowledge, they were left with the impression that stuff had been stolen from your boat at 226 Hill Drive. I guess so. The obvious implication is that Greg and Travis continued to think that electronics were stolen off of English's boat in Satilla Shores, and that would be a felony. Is that reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion? On February 23, 2020, the final day of Ahmad's life, English got another alert on his phone. But he was working with his bees and couldn't check the message. 30 minutes later, he finally made a call. You called Diego. Yeah. Contact Diego. By the time you contacted Diego, it was too late. Yes. Thank you, Mr. English. The prosecution's final two witnesses of the week offered damaging testimony against all three defendants. Actually, the final witness's testimony appeared to be devastating to Roddy's defense. But let's start with Glenn County Police Officer Robert Rash. Rash's patrol area included Satilla Shores. He responded to numerous 911 calls there, including some made by Larry English when Ahmad showed up on his surveillance camera video. In December, Rash saw Greg in his yard. He drove up and told him about the suspicious black man who had showed up on English's security video. Greg offered to help, and Rash texted Greg's contact information to English. He told him Greg is a former cop, and he also worked as an investigator for the DA's office. Here, Prosecutor Donikoski wants to clear one thing up with Rash. Did you deputize Greg McMichael? No, ma'am. Okay. No, ma'am. Did you give him any authority to act as a police officer? No, ma'am. All right. My goal with that sending that text was Greg McMichael had, to my knowledge, about 30-plus years of law enforcement experience. Who else to be an expert witness? Call 911. Let's jump forward to the night of February 11, 2020, 12 days before Ahmad is killed. That's when Travis saw the man later identified as Ahmad on English's property. And Travis told police when he turned his headlights on Ahmad, Ahmad, quote, hauled ass into English's open, unsecured house. Rash arrives at the scene responding to Travis's 911 call. Greg, Travis, Diego Perez, and another neighbor are out there looking for the black man seen by Travis. After clearing the house and finding no one there, Rash calls English. He says the person on the security camera is the same guy as before, Ahmad. Rash is on speakerphone with Greg and Travis, standing right next to him. Listen closely to what Rash relates to Greg and Travis. Nobody seems to know who this kid is, where he's coming from. But, like, he's always, all the times on the video that Mr. English has sent me, he sent me one now, it's always been just in there plundering around. He hasn't seen him actually take anything. I said so. Greg chimes in, saying it's criminal trespassing. That's a misdemeanor. Rash then says, or loitering or prowling. More misdemeanors. And you heard that, right? English says he hasn't seen him take anything. And he told that to Greg and Travis. Then Donikoski plays the video from inside English's house. We're expecting to see Ahmad race in, anxious and frightened. Far from it. Let's let Rash describe it himself. Now, Travis McMichael described Mr. Arbery as hauling ass into the house. Is that right? Uh, yes. You saw that video? Yes, ma'am. What did Mr. Aubrey do? Uh, in that video, he was walking slowly, walking through normal through the house. Seriously, Ahmad doesn't look concerned at all. He just walks and looks around like he's been doing in the other security videos. Donikoski closes this way. Did you ever see Mr. Aubrey with any bags, backpacks, or any way to steal anything out of the house? Never seen him with anything in his hands coming or going from the property on the videos that I have seen. Do you have any evidence whatsoever that Ahmad Arbery ever stole anything from the open, unsecured construction site? I do not. The final witness of the week is GBI agent Jason Sechrist. This is a bad, bad moment for Roddy. Real bad. Sechrist was assigned to interview Roddy after the GBI took over the case from Glenn County PD. And Goff let him sit for interviews, even do a reenactment seated in Sechrist's car. It was videotaped and played for the jury. Sechrist had read Roddy's prior interviews with the police, 
like when he talked to Minshew at the scene in Lowry at headquarters. Prosecutor Larissa Olivier asked Secrest to compare what Roddy told police and what Roddy told him. His statements to the Glen County Police Department were more direct in his involvement to corral and box in Mr. Arbery during the event. His statements to me minimized his um, involvement in that process that led to Mr. Arbery's death. When he sat down with Sechrist, Roddy was told he was a witness to the case. But he was also warned things could change. We've always wondered how Roddy could claim he had reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion that Ahmad was fleeing the scene of a felony. That's because all he saw was a black man chased by two white men in a pickup truck. But Roddy's answers to the GBI agent's questions indicate that he had no clue. You can decide for yourselves. Here's Sechrist reading from a transcript of his interview with Roddy. Did he say he knew what was going on at that time? He did not. Mr. Bryan said, and for whatever reason, I don't. Well, I mean, at that point, I was like, okay, well, he's chasing him in the truck, whoever's in the truck, you know, and I'm figuring, I don't know. I don't know what's going on at that point, but I'm figuring something's wrong. It gets worse. I asked, and why were you going back to your truck? Why were you grabbing your keys? Mr. Bryan responded, I guess just to go see what was going on, if anything needed to be done, if I could help or whatever. I mean, I, I didn't know. I mean, to be honest with you, I don't know what I was doing. I asked, what was it that made you decide I need to go get my key and get in my truck and see what's going on? Mr. Bryan responded, I really don't know. I said, okay. And then Mr. Bryan said, I, I, I can't answer that. I just, I don't know. It just, you know, I'm thinking through my mind that maybe he's done something. The guy running and I just, I don't know. Okay. And one more. I stated, okay, what made you think he had done, he might have done something wrong? Mr. Bryan responded, it was just instinct, man. I don't know. Goff was cross-examining Secrets when court adjourned Friday for the weekend. Testimony resumes Monday. Next, on Breakdown. Your Honor, I've been asked to address some comments the other day. The court hasn't asked me to do that. Whatever you've been asked to do has not been asked by the court. Very well. I, I will let the court know that if my statements yesterday were overly broad, I will follow up with a more specific motion on Monday, uh, putting that and those concerns in the proper context. And my apologies to anyone who might have inadvertently been offended. As always, thank you so very much for listening. We'll continue to drop an episode every week of the trial. Hopefully, we'll have a verdict by the end of this week. Thanksgiving is right around the corner. You can follow our daily coverage on our website, AJC.com. And if you really want to support local journalism, especially our journalism, please subscribe to the AJC or our digital version, AJC.com. Be safe and take care. If you haven't been vaccinated, please, please do so for all of us. And get that booster too. I got mine. And I got mine. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. I'm Shadi Abu Saeed. And I'm Asia Simone Burns. You've been listening to Breakdown, hosted by Bill Rankin. Produced by Asia Simone Burns and Bill Rankin. Edited by Jennifer Brett and Jay Black. Music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guin. Sound design by Asia Simone Burns and Jay Black. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Sean McIntosh, Leroy Chapman, Pete Corson, and Zach McGee. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the previous seven seasons of Breakdown. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. 
So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.